correct me if I'm wrong, are there any changes in the song? Or does it just basically do the same thing for five minutes straight? I'm pretty sure it does the same thing. I think thing it's four for, minutes. It's and- four minutes and 57 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where longtime friends, musicians, music critics, well, I should say people who are very critical of music, (laughs) get together to discuss a randomly selected album from the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Each week we take a new album, we beat it up, we look at it from a multitude of angles, give it a bit of a post-mortem, if you will, and then at the end we vote and let you know if you should spend your time listening to this album. This week we've been listening to an album called Mermaid Avenue by Billy Bragg and Wilco. Crazy enough, I didn't know this until recently, but there is, of course, another major player on this album who we'll, we'll talk about shortly. Now, before we get started, if you're a fan of what we're doing on this show, go ahead and sprinkle some of that uh, hoodoo voodoo on the like and share buttons. <laughs> well, well done, sir. <laughs> or better yet, just tell your friends. All the stuff actually makes it really easy for people to, or easier, rather, for new people to find the show. So let's go ahead and jump right in so you can get an idea of what we've been listening to all week. We'll start with the track, Walt Whitman's Niece. Last night or night before that, I won't say which night. Seaman friend of mine, I'll not say which seaman. Walked up to a big old building, I won't say which building. Would not have walked up the stairs, not to say which stairs. Let's go around the horn and uh, introduce our cast of characters today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and give a tweet-length review uh, of this album. Hey, this is Rob here, and my tweet-length review of Mermaid Avenue is, I liked one or two aspects of this record. I won't say which aspects, (laughs) (laughs) but really what I want to say is half-baked ideas revived and reinterpreted remain half-baked. <laughs> Ooh, spicy. Coming in hot. All right, this is Tom. My tweet-length review, very short, short, very concise. It's just uh, white people. <laughs> <laughs> I, In all honesty, I, I thought in my head that this was like an alternate timeline where the South won the Civil War. This is what popular <laughs> music would sound like. <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Adam and my quick tweet length review is that regarding the entire idea for this album, to quote Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park, they were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. That's <laughs> a good one. The Jurassic Park reference you didn't know you needed. Yes, yes. Oh, hold on to your butts, audience. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is going uh, a lot different than I thought it was tonight. I feel like I'm going to be playing a little bit of defense, but uh, this is Alan here. So my tweet length review is this album has all the ingredients of what should be a pretty terrible album. You've got kind of a gimmicky premise, this idea of trying to blend the old with the new, but much like Scrapple or Slim Jims, the end product is actually quite tasty. Mm, yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, now that Tom's back in Delaware, I feel like, you know, we we have to do some strength in numbers here. I, I went to a Scrapple Festival in rural Pennsylvania about 10 years ago, and it was a fascinating, fascinating experience where you actually learned and watched them meet, uh, make Scrapple, which in its pri- before it actually becomes 
Scrapple. I think it's called like glop or mush <laughs> or something. And then it, don't worry, it doesn't cook. It coagulates. <laughs> so that's what you want from your meat products. Adam, Sorry, I have take a question. it away, Alan. I have a question for you here, Adam. How many yeah. of the people who attended that Scrapple Festival do you think are dead of heart attacks by this point, <laughs> 10 years on? <laughs> it's got to be a pretty high percentage. I, I, I think I, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had to do a weigh-in before they allowed you to the, <laughs> <laughs> the festival. Funny enough, though, I think I would love that. Yeah, it was tasty. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man. Good shit. Okay. Let's let's talk a little bit about this album, I, how it came together, a little bit of the, the backstory here. The This record itself, Mermaid Avenue, was re- released in 1998, but its origins actually go way back as early as the 1940s to American folk icon Woody Guthrie. So that's the part I actually didn't know. I've had this album sort of on my playlist for a few years. Didn't know it was a Woody Guthrie album. In fact, I thought some of the songs were just straight up Wilco songs because I am, am a big fan of that group as well. But uh, I think most people know who Woody Guthrie is. But for the those who are not familiar, Woody Guthrie was a, I don't know how you would describe him, a folk singer, poet, political activist, did a lot of his you know most notable work in the 40s. This is also something I didn't know. His most well-known song by far is the song this land is your land which was written really in 1940 i thought that was written in like the 1800s yeah same here that's crazy okay it's actually kind of a subversive song right that song is meant to be a little bit on the sort of socialist side and uh it's be- taken on this aura of the classic americana but it's sort of saying hey this is supposed to be for everybody and not the people who have monopolized all the power and wealth how dare you, you anti-American? No. Yeah, I agree. I think it's taken on, or it's meant to be in that sort of born in the USA vein where it, ah. it comes off as this patriot. It was actually a direct response to, I think the way he said it was, he was so tired of hearing people sing God bless America all the time that he wanted to write something that was a little bit more of a response to that song. But I think the the biggest thing about Woody Guthrie and the reason he's such a big part of this is because he is basically a direct inspiration for almost all of the singer songwriter folk artists that most people like. So your Bob Dylan's, your Jerry Garcia's, Springsteen, Johnny Cash, you name it. Like almost all of them trace their influences directly back to Woody Guthrie. And he was out in the forties. You said that he was he was his heyday was in the nineteen forties. That was when. So he wrote "This Land Is Your Land" in nineteen forty. And well, he died, and I, th- I want to say in the sixties, sixty-seven, maybe. Okay. So, but he was writing this entire time, which which Got we'll it. talk about in a moment. But I was just gonna say, yeah, he was very prolific, and I think he was known for being this writer during the Dust Bowl times, during the Depression times, writing about those struggles, kind of grapes of wrath, looking for work, moving from town to town, kind of stuff. And I would say that it's, I think it's fair to say he influenced every, any songwriter that has ever sought to use songwriting as a tool to send a, a deeper message, to send a political message, to send a message of revolution, you know, something along those lines. So all those people you mentioned, of course, are in that category, but. Hmm. Well, that was a big criticism of Bob Dylan when he first started, right? I mean, not maybe not necessarily criticism, but he repurposed a lot of Woody Guthrie stuff into songs that sometimes it was melody, sometimes it was words and sort of would take this approach of trying to rehash some Woody Guthrie, maybe like you said, Rob, half-baked ideas to much greater effect than was done on this album, by the way. Oh, he was a huge fanboy of Woody Guthrie. I mean, he's he's Bob Dylan's number one hero. Yeah, he's got that, that song, Song for Woody, is great. It's a, that's one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs. Yeah, he was taking, like, publicity photos that looked like Woody's publicity photos and stuff. Like, he really wanted to be. Oh, okay, fanboy, number that's one. Right. Yes. All right. Yeah, well, and interestingly enough, Woody even told Bob Dylan, or maybe it was someone in his orbit, that if you don't know what you're doing, steal something else that you like and kind of go from there. So it sounds like Dylan may have taken that, you know, quite literally. <laughs> so in his, he was very politically inclined and politically charged as, as we've sort of talked about. 
he was most likely a socialist communist, or he at least associated with a number of communist groups, which of course, back in this time, especially growing up in Oklahoma, you know, he was sort of this original Okie, you know, these, these folks who, Rob, you mentioned Grapes of Wrath, who went to California to start a new life, which we'll talk about one of those songs here. But uh, he, I think a lot of people associate him with his, with his guitar that he wrote, this machine kills fascists on it. And that was sort of his big thing. He was very anti-fascist, which I, I guess, does that make him Antifa? I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. That is, that is pretty badass thing to write on your guitar. And you can, you <laughs> yes. draw that direct line up to Tom Morello who has arm the homeless on his yeah. guitar. Which yeah. Is yeah. A great slogan. <laughs> totally. Totally. So, Something else he was really known for, though, was he was a writing machine, right? So he wrote literally thousands of pages of lyrics, different manuscripts, musings, children's songs. I mean, he wrote and wrote and wrote. And a lot of that came after World War II when he was living on Mermaid Avenue on Coney Island, which hence the name of this album. So fast forward to 1995, Woody Guthrie's daughter, Nora Guthrie, reached out to an English singer-songwriter, Billy Bragg and said, Hey, I have this mountain of basically lyrics that he never, would he never put any music to? They're just kind of sitting in a box. I would love for you to reimagine these lyrics as something a bit more contemporary, you know, so not trying to sound like Woody sounded or what the music sounded like back then, but kind of reimagine these lyrics for a, uh, for, for modern times. Right. Did they have a choice? Was it like a box full of 1,000 pages of lyrics? Or did the daughter just give them 13 and say, you have to work with these 13? Or did they have a choice in the lyrics? (laughs) Well, I don't think she would have given him hoodoo voodoo if uh, if that were the case. But no, they did have a choice. I I don't know if there was like a what the filtering process was. So I don't know that she just said, hey, here's literally like thousands of pages. Although in watching parts of the documentary, which really only a few segments are available online, it does seem like they were just kind of going through it, grabbing things that that they liked and kind of working through them that way. So I do think it was a bit of a kind of needle and haystack type of situation. It's a cool idea. I mean, I really like the idea. I, I like the idea of, of musical challenges where you're given something and then asked to reproduce something. It's almost like chopped, right? But with music, like, uh, I, I had a, a challenge with uh, a, a buddy of mine and we, we were going to take, uh, songs and the melodies that are major and then try to overlay minor and diminished chords over them and see what you come up with. Right. And, and so I, I like the idea of a challenge where here's some lyrics, see what you guys can do. Try to get a vibe from the, uh, from the story it's telling and then, to your point, kind of reimagine that. Like, what would that sound like coming out of a, a modern day songwriter? So I appreciate the idea. I think it's pretty cool. I like the concept of the challenge, but making a good album is challenging already. And so you're throwing another <laughs> level of challenge on there that is just a barrier between you and a good end product. And goodness. One, <laughs> one of my notes is that I, it sounds like they are having a great time making this album. I did not have a great time listening to this album but it sounds like they were having a great time putting it together. Let's get into that a little bit. And, and I think we've, we, we can add on some more of the historical context here as far as how they, how Wilco got involved in everything. But it seems like there's a, a quasi consensus that this album is lacking a lot. So, so I say more about that. I'm kind of curious, like general takes of, of this album. I'll, I'll jump in. Cause I think the problem I have with it, is you guys talked about challenges. I'm for challenges. I'm for creative constraints. I'm for writing prompts. However, those none of those speak to the issue of taking an artist's scraps, if you will, of purpose, presumably purposely unpublished material. I mean, we're not talking about putting the last 10% on a 90% done record. This isn't a Temple of the Dog situation, which I've always been led to believe was like songs that were written the guy dies, and now Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell are like, let's... Actually, I'm speaking out of turn. I don't really know how Temple of the Dog came about, but I am skeptical. <laughs> well, I think of like the wagon wheel <laughs> situation where Dylan actually wrote the hook for that song. Ultimately, it gets into, you know, old Crow Medicine show, and they, you know, put the finishing touches on it, essentially. I wonder if that's 
kind of similar to what you're referring uh, to. Yeah, perhaps. I think it's different when the artist is still alive, though. And yeah, Wagon Wheel is an interesting touchstone. I, w- I want to re- return to that because I think that is it is it is an important touchstone because I think it's kind of how traditional music works throughout the throughout history, which is to say that you have these shells of songs or maybe even just a chorus or a refrain part. And then people kind of add verses to it over time in different versions. And I think some of this stuff dates back to, I think that's really common in like Irish traditional music, which is maybe the only version of traditional music I know somewhat intimately, like in, in songs like the Wild Rover and stuff. But, you know, I, I think that dates back to a time before recorded music where you kind of had to interpret everything you got your hands on because you weren't listening to the definitive version of it on a record. But anyway, I, either way, I think that's distinct from the idea that the writer has passed on. Like, oh, hey, hey, Picasso put a couple uh, strokes of paint on this canvas. Do you want to go ahead and finish it off for him, Adam? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just not sure uh, if that's such a great right. idea overall. Question on that note, not to rabbit hole this too much. If the lyrics were entirely coined by Billy Bragg and Wilco. So if this pretext didn't exist and they just got together and said, let's make an album, the song sounded exactly the same. Lyrics were the same. Would that change your opinion of the album? I will say for me personally, my first several listens through, I had no idea that it wasn't just them writing these songs and I didn't like it. And then I found out that it was Woody Guthrie and I liked it a little bit more because of that, because I understood the constraints that they were working with. And also, there's something about Woody Guthrie's personality, viewpoint, approach, whatever you want to say, that gives it lends some credence to or some heft to his his point of view. It seems like a well-earned point of view. And I didn't get the sense that these guys were coming with that same well-earned point of view to this project. It's like a, a greeting card. Hey, here's what someone else said when you give it to somebody. Yeah, and right. then you say, I agree. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this sentiment was really nice. I'll write my name yeah. at the bottom and give it to whoever. I, I agree with Tom. The addition, which came a little later in my listening, of the Woody Guthrie aspect of this made it more palatable and more understandable. But even still, I think my problem with it is how inconsistent it is stylistically. There are certain styles on this record that I actually do quite like, and we can talk about them via the songs we picked. And if if you know if they represented kind of an average of the vibe of the record, I think I could have I would find it much more palatable. But the, some of these songs are just like to me embarrassingly bad. They, again, it sounds like they're having a good time, as Tom mentioned, but I'm not. I'm not a part of this group. I'm, I'm not at this hootenanny. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good term for this album, hootenanny. Yeah, I I won't disagree with a lot of what is said. I, I will say I happen to really like this album. I think the songs are really good. There are some shit songs on here, without question. The biggest complaint I did have, and maybe you alluded to this, Rob, is it, in some ways it does feel like a compilation because it kind of is, right? And one of the things that bothered me a little bit was it, it it sometimes felt like they were just trading off songs. So it's like, all right, Billy Bragg, you you have this song, Tweety does this song back and forth. You know, same backing band, but it, I did feel like it lacked a little bit of that cohesion yeah, it didn't between s- songs. It didn't seem sure. like the two were talking to each other, like to, to try to stay in any way consistent. So it did feel like two albums... Of, that were completely like didn't feel like they were actually collaborating very very much for the uninitiated who uh billy bragg is the singer of wilco and tweedy is the british guy opposite or the other way around got it okay yeah so billy bragg and i really i've heard of him because of this album and he, he's a somewhat well-known he, he's actually a british singer songwriter the reason that he was sought out by nora guthrie was because he also, he's been around since probably like the late 70s, I, I, I think. Sort of started in that like punk-ish aspect, was really into The Clash and, and bands like that. But his music has been very politically forward, very politically charged. So she felt like he was best positioned to carry out whatever was in this box full of letters, so to speak. And he agreed to take it on 
but at the time he was getting really into to Wilco, who were essentially an alt country band coming out of Chicago in the mid nineties. What's interesting though is at the time they only they were only two albums into their career. Right. So I would have thought they were, you know, and they're obviously like a I think it's safe to say they're a household name at this point, but they were, you know, two albums in, so it wasn't like they would add a bunch of cred to this other than he really liked the way they played music. And so, you know, and, and what's interesting is Jeff Tweedy, who he's, he's the lead singer for Wilco. He was very ambivalent about the project. I think he was, which if you've seen interviews with him, he he's a very Krabby's the wrong he's word. An but asshole. He, he's, I, he's a little <laughs> bit uh, aloof, you know? And so him being ambivalent to it was not surprising. Who, who was really into it though, was his main collaborator at the time, Jay Bennett, who, Actually, I think one of his old bands was named after a Billy Bragg song. So he was like all about it. And uh, but also this guy, if, you, if you've seen the Wilco documentary about how they made Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, this guy, Jay Bennett, was a little bit of a control freak, was very insistent on mixing everything himself, even if there were better options, which actually led to a huge falling out after this album where, you know, they come out with this album and they weren't even able to put together like a promotional tour or agree on like royalties or mu- musician fees because this guy Jay Bennett was so controlling about you know wanting to mix the album and all that. So, but ultimately that's why Wilco was was brought in and so they are essentially the backing band, you know, for this entire project with Tweedy and Billy Bragg, you know, kind of trading off lead vocals. And just for those who don't know Wilco as well, let's just let's just just to put a fine point on doubling down on what you just said, Alan. Which this is pre any sincere Wilco fame. Just like you said, it's two albums in. I'm not I'm not nearly as familiar with. I, I'm relatively familiar with Wilco after Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, right? Which is now 20 years ago ish. So they've had a lot of output since then. And I'm less familiar with their very early stuff, but I, I I have to say they've always been labeled all country. But I don't. I think of them as a little more of a rock band, ex, almost experimental, experimental, like fuzzy rock. They're 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 a very palatable version of that. Admittedly, I'm not saying they're they're avant garde noise rock. Far from it. But I, I've always thought the country label was a little odd for them. And I went and listened to their album that came out right before this, just to kind of confirm it but yeah they're kind of noisy they're kind of a distorted rock band not they don't sound like this well, they hate the label they, they jeff tweedy loathes the label and i think what was happening is you know they the band that sort of spawned wilco was this band called uncle tupelo so they broke up and kind of formed two bands one was a band called sun volt the other was wilco and i think uncle tupelo had a lot more of that alt country vibe to it and so that may have stuck with the band a little bit but those first two albums i do agree they're nothing close to country and i i wonder if it was just critics trying to make sense of hey here's alternative music that just sounds a little bit more south and was having a hard time categorizing it i'm not sure but certainly now wilco is is very very much more of an experimental you know type of band when you're describing the sound i would have used those same descriptors to describe Yola Tango, basically, which is kind of a little bit of experimental, kind of kind of crunchy, a little bit of fuzzy, but also plays in a lot of different pools. They they touch a lot of yeah. different genres. That's not that's not a terrible touchstone. Wilco is a little more songwritery than Yola Tango, but but similar tones, I think, in some cases, and similar similar waters. Anyway, I'm I'm a little biased because I do like Wilco's. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and Beyond output. So I'll happily be a Wilco defender. And frankly, I think the Wilco led songs or the Jeff Tweedy led songs on this are the better tunes, the more palatable tunes to my ear. So I just I I'm I'm wary of this being an introduction for people to Wilco and and maybe being a little turned off because I think their output is is pretty strong in the 2000s. It's funny when I I when I first listened to this, I did not have the context that this was very early on in Wilco's career and that Billy Bragg was the famous one and Wilco were the sort of the people that were along for the ride or sort of being blessed into this project. My my initial note was did Billy Bragg 
pull Jeff Tweedy out of a house fire or something like that, and he just owed him big, and that was why it happened. Because <laughs> you know, you look, you go back. Uh, clearly, you you look at him now, and you're like, well, Wilco, like you said, kind of a household name. If you're into non top 40 music you know who wilco is even if you don't like wilco which i don't particularly like wilco i still know who they are and i've heard a lot of their stuff i have no idea who billy bragg is and all of our listeners in the uk can you know write 1001 album complaints at gmail tell us how stupid we are and how much we should be loving his uh his earlier works go eat some haggis yeah. which i guess is the uk version of scrapple <laughs> scrapple yes. i've had haggis scrapple is a thousand times better yeah yeah, Tom and I yes. dined on Haggis together, in fact. Yeah. And we immediately <laughs> oh. commented that Scrapple was superior. Superior. <laughs> it's your go-to disgusting Delaware meat. It's much better. If you know, you know. Right. <laughs> well, this is actually a good segue. Speaking of Wilco and their, you know, the vibe they contribute to this album, let, let's take a spin through the song California Stars. So my thought was, this song's pretty good. If the entire album were sort of this on average, I would find it much easier to listen to and much easier to like. I don't think it's an exceptional song. I was thoroughly surprised that it's the most played song and considered sort of the hit on the album. That was surprising because a couple of the other tunes stood out to me more. I wonder if it's just because it has California in the title. I was going to say that that old uh, Onion article where the Chili Peppers accidentally write a song about Oregon or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, my note is... And so, yeah, you want a song, you know, put California in it. Guaranteed hit. My note on this was definitely, oh, finally, a song longing for California. I really wish that you know, more people <laughs> did this. Nights. Yeah, come on. <laughs> I actually... So, okay, I, I really love the song. I think this was the best song on the album and it's actually become a kind of staple in Wilco's live set because to me, I would say this song, if you do want an introduction to Wilco and you've never heard anything and you do listen to this album, I feel like this is very true to, to how they sounded or at least how they sounded back, you know, in some of those early albums. Yeah, that, this is more or less what they sound. I agree with that sentiment. I just don't think it's it. Did, it wasn't a standout track for me, but it does sound like them. I will go a little confessional style here. I had a hard time listening to this album as many times as I listened to most of the albums that we do. So I'm going to need a little bit of a refresher on California Stars. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are there any changes in the song, or does it just basically do the same thing for five minutes straight? I'm pretty sure it does the same thing. I think it's four minutes. It's four minutes and 57 (laughs) seconds. I think we can issue a global comment here that there are very few changes on this album. So we'll just, we can just, I think, safely say the answer to your question is no. no I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but we used to say amongst ourselves that some Woody Guthrie documentary had him saying, if you're playing more than two chords, you're showing off. (laughs) And if you listen to Woody Guthrie's songs, they're like 97 seconds long. And they're great. They're great. (laughs) He gets in, he gets out. Didn't need to be five minutes. Alan, I'm kind of in in, in the same boat with you. So I first listened through this album. I wanted to hate it. Just from the start of that Walt Whitman's niece, and they had that big gang vocal doing the reply. I was like, oh, God, it's going to be one of those kind of albums. Then I got to California Stars. I was like, all right. I, I could I could dig on this, and it was not the most offensive album in the world. And and I'm kind of a sucker for this kind of laid back country fried rock thing. So this this fell somewhat into my wheelhouse a little bit. So I'll back you up there that I 
I, no, I, I like, to be clear, I like it too, especially, I think the biggest problem I have the album was, yeah, aforementioned Walt Whit- Whitman's niece, or Hoodoo Voodoo, which I think we're going to touch on. Like, how dare you start the album with this track? <laughs> God, that track was terrible. <laughs> also, well, Walt uh, Whitman. Uh, banging Walt Whitman's niece <laughs> isn't, uh, that doesn't feel like well, the best way to start a song. Like, you couldn't have found another song that didn't say, I don't know which semen I mean, that's the lie. <laughs> you say it like four times. I'm sorry. I know I'm being a, like a teenager here, but it's just, it puts you off a little bit as the opening track. You're like, wait, what did he say? Right. Like if you're going to do a call and response, that particularly is right. No, but to, to take it back to what Tom said about them having a good time, the Walt, Walt, Walt Whitman's niece and a couple of the other tracks, but particularly the fact that they put that one first, it really, it's presumptuous. And what I mean is it's presumptuous to put that album, to put that song first on the album. It presumes that we're already all friends here, that we're already all having a grand time together. They're getting drunk. Mm-hmm. It's like, actually, I just met you. I just hit play, man. Like, ease me into it a little bit. <laughs> well, oh, hold on. Does Okay, I'm not saying this is of the level of, I don't know, appetite for destruction, but like, do you feel like you need to be eased in with Welcome to the Jungle? That just hits you in the face right away. I, I, I'm not sure I see that well, as a welcome to the, legitimate Welcome to the though. Jungle is a great song. and It is a mission statement. This is not a great song. This is not a mission statement except for in a negative way that we have taken these ideas and we have gotten them about 80% developed and that we didn't develop them any farther and we just are going to be super repetitive and we're going to go on for longer than one needs to go on and it will get monotonous by the end of the song. Like If that's the mission statement they were trying to put out there, good mission statement. I don't think that's what they were trying to put out. <laughs> no, no, I think you're right there. You, I don't think that's the point I was making. What I'm saying is whether you like the song or not, to start an album like this with something that's a little bit more rowdy that might be a bar type song. I don't see what the problem with that is. It's I just a bad song. I guess it shows who was in control, which is to say Billy Bragg. But yes, by the time California Stars comes up, you're like, yes, this is a breath of fresh air. I could listen to a whole album of this song, which I have because I've listened to Wilco's catalog. Fair enough. Yeah, it's. I think part of... We've talked about this many times before. So many complaints go away if it's just a strong song. Dumb premises, repetitiveness, poor mixing choices. All this stuff goes away if the song itself is very (laughs) strong. And this just wasn't like Walt Walt Whitman's niece was not a strong song. California Stars is a it's a good song. Uh, but it's almost one of those you're digging yourself out of a hole already. I was so turned off by Walt Whitman's niece that I get to California Stars, and unless it was like mind blowingly yeah. awesome, I'm just like you're you're not even back to normal for me. You're not even back to good. <laughs> you're not even back to yeah. digging out of a hole. I agree. That's what I felt. Right. That's that's a good way to put it. It's like when the uh, the bank charges you the overdraft fee and you're back to like negative five dollars. Like it's more. It's more than I had before, but it's yeah. still negative money. Right. <laughs> Damn it. All right. Let's, uh, I think I, I think I know how we're going to feel about this next song, but let's, let's move to way over yonder in the minor key. I lived in a place called Ophersky and I had a little girl in a hollow tree. I said, little girl, it's plain to see Ain't nobody that can sing like me Ain't nobody that can sing like me She said, it's hard for me to see How one little boy got so ugly Yes, my little girly, that might be but there ain't nobody that can sing like me Ain't nobody that can sing like me Way over yonder in the minor key Way over yonder in the minor key There ain't nobody that can sing like me Oh, I'm going to flip it on its head. I think this is the best melody on the record. I had this one running through my head. It's definitely the best Billy Bragg song on the record, for sure. That was good. The highlight of the album for me, absolutely. 
the one thing that I will say as a criticism that I think is a legitimate criticism, I think that when I when I first listened to this, I again listened to it without the context of oh these are all Woody Guthrie songs. I still liked the song and I thought it was good, but knowing that it was a Woody Guthrie song, I think that it was supposed to be wry and I think it was supposed to be non-seriousness, non-serious because Woody Guthrie does not have a good voice. Uh, you listen to his voice, it's quirky, it's weird. <laughs> it is point. not the most melodious and that. beautiful voice. I think he was saying this in the kind of, Woody Guthrie has a non-seriousness about him at times and a weirdness and leans into that weirdness. And I think that this song would probably have been more like like a children's song almost, like a funny kind of like, hey, 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 I'm making fun of myself kind of song. Not to say the serious version that they did on the album didn't work, but I kind of wanted to hear the Woody Guthrie like non-serious version of it. It's a good point. That's another reason Bob Dylan was so inspired by him, right? Because they neither of them have mellifluous voices necessarily. But and I I what? have to, I have to mention because I don't think any of the other songs we put on this focus list hit this point, but Natalie Merchant really helps this one along and I thought her tunes sounded great. Yeah. So I dug the way this song built uh, echoing Rob's point about really liking it. Yeah, this was a great tune. At the one minute mark, the accordion comes in along with Natalie Merchant's vocal, which is very nice as it builds throughout. I love the addition. I don't know if it's an 808 or a cannon, but there's some like, which <laughs> is a little out of place, but I liked it. It was very cool. I'm picturing them in the studio throwing down that 808 bass. You know what I really felt? I really felt like I already knew the song the first time I heard it. And I actually searched online and said, oh, did did I hear this in a TV show or something? Like this melody sounded remarkably familiar to me. And even the the lyrics sounded remarkably. But I wasn't able to locate any rationale for that other Mm. than that it was that it's well. You know what it might be? Natalie Merchant has a really recognizable voice. I feel like I didn't know that it was Natalie Merchant, but as soon as I found, I was like, "Oh, I know this voice. I know, I know this singer. I have to find out who this is." And so that might have made it seem very familiar. She just has a voice that, for some reason, is just in. She there. does have yeah. a very distinct voice, and it's funny that Courtney and I were listening to this album in on a road trip the other day, and you know, she's a big music fan, but I don't think she knows she's I don't think she's able to suss out who's singing what in most songs but even she was like oh that sounds like Natalie Merchant singing those background vocals so yeah I agree I do think she's a little bit underutilized on this song so I was really glad to see that she got her own tune she got her own yeah yeah there is a I don't know if it's Conan or it's one of the late shows that was that was going on back in the late 90s where they actually do this song and they bring her in to do it, which is great. But I feel like to bring her in to just sit there and sing a few harmonies to me is not like leveraging her to the to the most. Mm. Well, maybe for those not steeped in '90s lore, we should probably mention that Natalie Merchant of Ten Thousand Maniacs fame, right? What was their because was their big the hit? night belongs to lovers because oh, yeah. oh you know who wrote that one, Tom? Your favorite. Springsteen, baby. Oh, Springsteen. Oh, yeah. Listen, no I don't way. dislike Bruce Springsteen. Stop, stop with this hate uh, campaign here. What was I the know. other song she had? Yeah, it's called right. Na Na Na, I think. It. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I also really like this song, too. This was definitely a super catchy song. This was, I will say, for all the shit we're talking about, Billy Bragg, I felt like this was the song where I sort of stopped and took notice and said, oh shit, like, I think he really has a a great, distinct voice. I'm not familiar with virtually any of his other catalogs, so I don't know if that is consistent throughout his music, but at least in this song, I, I took notice that he's got a very authoritative you know, just a very strong, robust voice, I thought. I would agree with that. He he sounds really good on the low end. And he didn't do any spoken word parts in this, which I like, because that spoken word part on that opening track, oh, God. Again, another... Yeah. another Leaves of grass my ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, if we're going to 
levy any criticism of this particular song and I, I it's relatively minor but i feel rob you mentioned earlier that it sounded like the two different sides of this collaborative project wilco and billy bragg weren't talking to each other when you got to the end and natalie merchant starts singing and diverging from the normal harmony that they're doing it sounded like these were just very disparate takes. It didn't, I could not picture the two of them sitting in a room and doing this at the same time and feeling like that would have been the natural way to go about it. It sounded like she probably came in and did a take and he did a take and they were never in the same room together. And that, again, it's, it's not a huge criticism, but I do feel like towards the end of the song, I would have liked a little bit more of, um, I'm going to throw out, like, you know, you guys know I love Carol King. She has that live at Carnegie Hall, which if you have not listened to Carol King live at Carnegie Hall, everybody do yourself a favor. Listen to that. Towards the end of that performance. After you listen. After you listen to this, yes. (laughs) Towards the end of that performance, she brings James Taylor out, and they do a bunch of songs. There's, like, a medley that they do of a bunch of songs Carol King wrote that other people did, like Up on the Roof and Some Kind of Wonderful and stuff like that. It's really fantastic, but the way that the two of them are singing together it is so obvious that they are playing off of each other and they're not necessarily hitting even the best notes all the time but they are so simpatico in their thinking of what they're trying to do there and i did not get that sense between billy bragg and natalie merchant when they diverged from the thing that they wrote that was a really great harmony and then they started improvising and doing all these other things and it seemed a little disjointed to me Again, I still like it. It's still the best song on the album, but it was that stuck out to me, and it, it bumps me a little bit when I get to the end of the song. We'll be under in the minor key. We'll be under in the minor key. Ain't nobody that can sing like me. We'll be under in the minor key. We'll be under in the minor key. Ain't nobody that can sing like me. Ain't nobody that can sing like me. That's fair. I do think they're in in one of the few clips from the documentary for this, which is called, I think it's called A Man in the Sand, if you're interested. By the way, the only way you can access this documentary, which is criminal at this point, is to buy a physical DVD from Amazon for like twelve dollars. So and, I guess you're probably and then never buy a DVD player. So I don't know after why I'm that. even talking about it. <laughs> 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 My laser disc broke, so I'm shit out of luck. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there is a clip of them demoing the song to an extent, and it they are working pretty closely together on it. Something must have gotten lost in translation if. That didn't come through, but you do make a good point, Tom, that in some of the other clips that I saw about how they arrived at, you know, who was going to sing what or whose version they were going to do. There were a few songs where, you know, Tweety would come in with his version and Billy would come in with his version and they were written without, you know, any knowledge of what the other person was going to do. And then they all would just say, okay, I like this version better. I like this version better. And so it did have a little bit of that piecemeal kind of feel where it's like let's sort of like auction off who oh yeah this one's the best this one's the best and i think it it does translate to some of that disconnect from song to song okay let's take a listen to our our next track on this album that we want to focus on it's called hoodoo voodoo Goofy dance Back booty blue jay One, two, three 
my note is why just why yeah. i was gonna say <laughs> listeners you're not privy to this call that we're on but i think three out of the four people on this call just started shaking their head when he said who do voodoo <laughs> nope 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 <laughs> Well, it's so interesting because there's an actual version that you can hear online of Woody Guthrie, and it is patently obvious that he's just doing stream of consciousness, just making silly noises and finding a word that rhymes with blah, 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 you know, and just a couple of chords. Back to that point of like a half-baked song, to take that and think, man, he was really on to something. <laughs> He wasn't just screwing around. These are really. De- it just- sounds like a, it sounds like a kid song. Yeah, frankly. I thought the Wiggles had slipped into my Spotify stream. You're telling me Chunk a Chunky Choo Choo wasn't poured over? <laughs> Dude, man, you just don't like. You just can't handle interpretive art. But that is that is part of Woody Guthrie's charm, though, is that he can go from writing he super serious away stuff. With it, What's the song? Right? He has about a car where he's like. He's like making car sounds as he's it's it's ridiculous and he leans the into smoke. the ridiculousness but this came yeah. off as serious like they're like oh yes we must we're gonna write a rocks a rockabilly tune and really you know yeah this song is horrible like i i for as much as i do like this album this song was almost enough to hit the brakes on listening to the rest of the track. <laughs> I agree, Adam. I'm glad you brought up the demo that somebody uncovered, which incidentally was uncovered at the Shell Silverstein archive. So I don't know what the connection is yeah. there, but having yeah. some goofy ass song That's right. lyrics kind of checks out there. But yeah, it's it really sounds like a children's song that is just total nonsense. What's funny, this is another song though that has become a really popular Wilco song and it's actually one of the songs they encore with a lot. And so I feel like I'd be a little bit salty if I went and saw Wilco and they (laughs) they end the song because it's (laughs) just, it's just nonsense. Well, it sounds like the, what's the vocalist name? Tweety bird. Jeff, (laughs) Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Tweety. Uh, it sounds like he did 10 gigs in a row or like a triple in a single day and then gargled with razor blades and just thought, you know what? I should go into the studio now and try to do this song. I mean, it's, I understand they were trying to maybe think like, let's do this. Let's get a raw take where I'm really pushing myself, but he's just cracking. There's a point where like his voice actually stops and it's just a whistle noise because he's cracking so hard. He's so young. I feel like now he's got a little elder statesman of rock kind of vibe, but you watch these videos. He's such a young guy. That's a great point. If you look at him now, you're like, I can see that. But then from this documentary, they're also chain smoking throughout the clips that I saw. So that was your chance to reuse mellifluous. <laughs> you, you know, I need to. I need a thesaurus here. We should have a segment that's like Rob's vocabulary. Word you majored the, in week. English. You don't know what mellifluous means. Mellifluous. Did you? You took those English classes. Do you think you actually learned? Shit I, I didn't go classes? to those classes. Come on. <laughs> that's why I became an English major. Was you could you could read part of the book and choose to just write about that and you didn't actually have to know as, as John Mulaney said you major in English so that you can go I think Emily Dickinson was a lesbian and they're like eh partial credit <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen it barely works when CCR says hoodoo voodoo type of bullshit in their sw- like totally fake swamp songs because they were El Cerrito California swamp <laughs> songs it barely works for CCR it definitely does not work for Billy Bragg and Wilco <laughs> yeah no, they're from the bio man come on don't, don't, don't mislead our audience they're here. born on the very affluent <laughs> Berkeley Hills yeah right <laughs> El Cerrito is not the bio like maybe Lodi is considered bio uh, but no funny it's, funny it's CCR story they played this is this is probably going back to like 98 they played at Frawley Stadium in Wilmington which is like a minor league single A baseball stadium incidentally Wilco played there actually 20 years later but anyway it was it was Creedence Clearwater revisited so non-Fogarty not right. only that the drummer it was a fill-in so the drummer couldn't even make it so People were going to basically see a CCR cover band because all you were getting was the bass player. <laughs> yeah. I hope you like the Doobie Brothers because we, we got one of them. 
Meanwhile, Cordero is playing down the street for like three bucks. All right. <laughs> All right. Let's take a listen to the next song, which is called At My Window, Sad and Lonely. At my window, sad and lonely. Oftentimes do I think of thee. Sad and lonely and I wonder. It's sad and lonely And every night It's sad and blue Do you ever think of me, my darling As you sail That ocean blue Boo frickin' who that's what I have to say for this song. It's not that sad. It's not that lonely. I'm a sucker for this type of tune. This this had that n- late 90s uh, Wallflowers, slow, steady drive, Hammond, piano, guitar. I dug this tune. Not my favorite, but may- maybe second favorite on the album. Th- this is the one that I, I went back to and was actually happy that it was on the the focus list, which we all listen to a ton, so I, agree with I like this song a lot too. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that. It was my favorite favorite of the Wilco led songs, so maybe my second favorite on the album. And you know, it's it sounds like a full idea is one of the reasons. I think I think it maybe had the best lyrics on the record to my mind. It sounded like a full song piece. It had it had parts to it. I don't know. I like the little dueling acoustic picking part that they had that they threw in there. That's maybe like two minutes in. It was yeah. I, I I hesitate to say it was my favorite because I think way down yonder st- stuck with me more. But maybe this is the most likely to get another a replay. I gotta tell you, I'm kind of shocked. I really this did not do it for me at all. My my note on this, this is the one note that I was able to put together for this song was that I feel like I'm drinking a room temperature glass of tap water while eating a slice of Wonder Bread. It was so nothing. <laughs> it was so just down the middle of the road. Nothing for me and uh, that. I'll maybe I that's, that's lunch for our friend John. <laughs> well, of course, yes. <laughs> Condiments are a luxury. I understand that. <laughs> but I hear that. I actually had. It's funny that you like the lyrics, Rob. I had that. I thought they were a bit pedestrian. I do think they sound really nice in the context of the song. But if you just look at a lyric sheet, it it a little looks a little bit like you know freshman poetry. But the harmonies were really sweet. I thought the oohs and ahs were as, as lame as that sounds. It's very easy to misplace or overuse those, those uh, elements, but I thought they were really well placed. It also felt like a lot of what I like about Wilco was that they can take these really simple songs with just a few chords and they're able to breathe this life into them that I think is, is, is hard to do. It also made me think of this is a weird comparison, but you know when we did that Green Day album, you know a few months back, we talked about how they were really good at working in this box, right? So they had a box, but within that box, they really crushed it. And I thought that I think Wilco does you know something similar where it's very simple music, but you know they're able to add a lot to it. I had a couple production notes, which is, hang on. Yeah, so they do something nice at the beginning. So you've got these kind of dual, dueling acoustic guitars, and there's a volume swell. Like actually on on the mixing board, they raise the volume at the 13 second mark when it comes in, and it's nice. It kind of envelops you as a listener, which I dug. And then also at the breakdown, the acoustic guitar with the Hammond. 
the Hammond is riding just the upper drawbars, which for, for the listeners is there's not a whole lot of low end. It's it's mostly the overtones and the upper registers. And that mix with the acoustic guitar is just super tasty. I just totally dig dig that that mix of organ and acoustic guitar. I feel it's like a Hammond cool. is like red meat for, for Adam. Oh my god. You can, I'm you just, just throw a, yeah. you could um, take uh you know Net a cherry, throw some Hammond in there. And if you listen to the new ICP album, slathered in Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> system of a Down, I'm going to start overdubbing that album with Hammond and see how Maybe it Maybe in 70 years someone will find some System of a Down lyrics just sitting in a box, <laughs> ready for some Hammond. <laughs> some real good. gems That's in there, good. I'm sure. Let's move on to the final song that we're going to talk about today, which is called I Guess I Planted. Guess I planted some long ocean seed of a song with that inside me long ago. And now I can't remember when it was, but it joined up with the rest of them and grows. It's such a little song, it don't compare with all your big ones you hear everywhere. But when it dawns, when the back of your mind, the big ones are made up by the little kind. Union song, union battle, all added up. What is all what we got now? Union song, union battle, all added up. What is all what we got now? song has all the thrills of farming (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say a bruce springsteen writing a farming song at least bruce springsteen would have like farming can be thrilling if you really think about it (laughs) i actually thought it had some elvis costello first album my aim is true energy but by that i mean the lamest songs on that record like sneaky feelings (laughs) which i assume only tom knows what i'm talking about i do know what you're talking about which is not that bad of a song it's better than this song it's not that bad yeah yeah this Uh, i like this i do i feel like i'm gonna get booted off this podcast i really i thought this was a really good song like i I felt like it was like the the energy peak of the album and yeah, I don't know. I just I thought it was cool. I thought it was a, a memorable song. I thought it was Rob to your point, maybe at this point in the album was the right time for the rowdy gang vocals, you know, type of song. So I don't know. Sure. I thought it was cool. It wasn't as it wasn't as offensive as the other ones of its ilk, but I, I have to say I just don't like this genre that much. What would you, what would you call this genre? It's kind of like a shitty the band. <laughs> shitty the band. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's pretty good, actually. Yeah, it's like a shitty yeah. version of the band. Yeah, the band is a good is a good comp for this. I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. The lyrically speaking, when I first heard it, I was like, "Oh, this is is this some?" Well, back to the band, I was like, "Is this some kind of Civil War song? Is this about like the Union?" But I think it's about unions like labor unions as opposed to union yeah, army. Yeah, like I, I planted a seed for the song. I'm a union fighting against, you know, my my corporate overlords. I think that's the metaphor that they were going for, but it's hard, you know, it's hard to know what he was thinking here. Yeah, is that, uh, you know, like uh, Lisa Simpson singing the union fight song on the... the- <laughs> <laughs> on the the front lines of the the pro t- of the uh the strike outside of the power plant what's the song that she sings there we're gonna have to we'll have to come back to this dear listeners but it's in there somewhere <laughs> i'm sure you will all write in and, and let us know yeah. so we anticipate the flood of responses. but but that was a thing back in the day is you would have people singing on the strike line protest songs against the corporate overlords and pro union songs. So maybe that's what he was talking about here. But again, is that exact? Like if you were singing a protest song on the strike line, you wouldn't be like, yeah, woohoo. All right. Yeah. We're all singing it together. <laughs> <Let's woo-hoo."> party. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just, uh, this song I don't know why I didn't like so many of the songs on here. I feel like it had the it had the makings of something I could like, but it just never came together. And a lot of these ideas just seemed half baked. And 
I liked 30 seconds into the song. He does that, that little slowdown. That was cool. And then right back into just... Right. Da, 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 yeah. da, da, and then just yeah. hammer, 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 cool. hammer, hammer. Same damn concept down your throat for the rest of the song. Well, I think the point of all this, listeners, is you don't have to know why you, you like or don't like something. So, <laughs> Wait, why, why are they listening to us, then? Yeah, right. I was going to say, exactly. right. that's why I felt kind of bad. Oh, uh, I'm that, supposed to be having cogent I, uh, arguments as to why I like or dislike these things. And some of the times, I just don't know. It just doesn't... It didn't strike the right tonal vibe in terms of the tone of the delivery versus what I think was the intent of the tone when it was written. We talked about it on um, way, way Over Yonder in the Minor Key. Um, talked about it a little bit in Hoodoo Voodoo. We talked, and I'll talk about it again in this song. I think that if you were to ask Woody Guthrie, he'd be like, that's not what I was going for at all. That's not the vibe I was going for <laughs> at all. It should have sounded like way this. different. <laughs> yeah, but that's... I, I'm okay with that, though. That's like, not I, really... I think, yeah. You can be okay with it, but what I'm saying is I don't think that I think writing something that may not have been the original intent is is not a detriment unless the song sucks, which, which it, it does. sounds like is what we're yeah. saying here. Yeah. I like it, but I, I'll I'll you know cede to the group here. No, you don't need to you stand away you can stick to your guns uh and say that you think that I am wrong personally, but as he often is. Well, that doesn't need to be said. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's just As implied. I often am. I As I often am, yes. <laughs> I am implied. very often wrong. But I will stick to my guns when I am wrong. To the death. But this song is just not good. It's just not interesting. I don't find it interesting. I'm sorry. Never has a truer <laughs> statement been made. <laughs> <laughs> I will fight till the bitter end, even if I'm wrong. It's going to be on Especially Tom's. Especially uh, if I'm wrong. <laughs> Especially if I'm arguing indefensible points. <laughs> All right. Well, I think the <laughs> I'm gonna say the moment of truth is here, but I think the momentum has been, or, or the suspense has been uh, pulled out of this one. But for exercise' sake, let's go around the horn and give our vote on whether you must listen to this album before you die. For me, it's a no. This is Rob here. I haven't been convinced that this is essential. It didn't bother me that much. You know, it was a nice enough record. I would have cut some songs from the track list. I think it would have gotten a lot stronger if you knocked it from around 50 minutes down to around 35 minutes. And in general, the embarrassing songs just stood out to me more than the high-quality songs. I think that's ultimately my my problem with it. So I don't think it really justifies its runtime is sort of the biggest thing. And if I want this kind of music, I feel like I have plenty of other Wilco material to draw from that, you know, that's the stuff I'm drawn to. So I'll go with the, the other Wilco records. Yeah. I'm going to go with a no on this one as well. Very cool concept. Sounds like a super fun time. Sounds like a fun concept. I would have loved to have been a part of the final product. I'm sure they like it. I'm sure they loved having done it. I don't need to be, a party to that i don't need to listen to it it seemed it's pretty disposable again not offensive it's not the worst album that we've listened to by far i wouldn't compare it to 461 ocean boulevard or anything like that but it's just essential no definitely not so i know i crapped on this album a, a decent amount but i actually didn't mind this one i liked a handful of the tunes in fact i i added uh california stars and way over the in the minor key to my list of the 10,000 songs that just go through random on my playlist on Spotify. So I, you know, it was, it was a decent album. I don't think it quite rises to the level of the must hear 1001 to echo Tom's point. Very cool concept. It's not even that I think they did a bad job at it. I just don't think it reaches the level of something that uh, is, is life changing or, or you absolutely need to hear. So it is a no for me, even though I dug it. All right. Well, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be the, the lone voice of reason here. No, I, I, I do think it's a yes. I agree that Wilco definitely has better material than this. I don't know much about Billy Bragg. I'm almost certain if he's been around as long as he has and was asked to do this, he's got better material than this. But for me, it does check a lot of boxes that I look for when sort of signing off on an album that you should listen to. I do think it's it's a neat story with some historical significance. One of the things I found interesting was was. Billy Bragg, when he when they set about this project, he said his goal for the album was, I would like at the end of this 
that Woody Guthrie begins to be recognized as one of the greatest American lyrical poets of the century. And I do think this album went a long way in bringing his, you know, his music and, and what he brought back into the forefront. So I do think it was a, a bit of a project that worked in that sense. I think the musicianship is, is really solid on this. I think they do a lot with yeah, pretty simple, you know, chord structures. And I do think they add a lot of variety, even if the songs are not fully formed. It's a kind of album that I would play often and would recommend. And I think it sounds fairly novel. So, you know, other than my complaint that it does have a bit of a compilation type of feel, but I think that's just the nature of an album like this, where, you know, it's sort of a one and done type of situation. So um, I do think it's a yes. So it doesn't matter though. I've been thoroughly steamrolled here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I'm I'm sorry, Wilco, your legions of fans will have to be a bit disappointed at this, but uh, it's a no for you all. I must say settle down dads. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, has anyone ever seen that? There's a video that Jerry Cantrell does where it's this like dad band in a garage. And there's this one guy who looks like kind of all of us. He's like, Hey, when are we going to play some Wilco? And he just says that like over and over again. So yes, yeah, very, very dad, dad rock here. Okay. To uh, cleanse our palate a bit here. Let's set our sights to next week and figure out what, we will spend our week listening to Tom. What do you got for us? All right. Thank you, Alan. We're going to bust out the old Albinator here. I had to pack it to ship across the country. Hopefully the gears haven't gotten discombobulated and we'll be able to get a clean spin on it. So without any further ado, drum roll, please. Next week we will be listening to the album is melodrama by the artist Lord. With an E. With an E. This, that might be the most, what uh, I'm looking, that's a 2017. Is that the youngest or or most recent? So I think this is is a post-book publication revision of the list album. A, a later edition. I didn't realize you did the software updates for the Albinator. I, I that's like that's impressive. <laughs> that's bringing that's in the new shit, a, dude. I got I got my it's I got like the the new set of punch cards in the mail that I put in there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I have no idea who this person or band is, so this should be. She had a big experience. hit, but it doesn't look like it's on this particular record. So. Huh? What Royals. was the hit? Royals was her hit. She's Royals. from New Zealand or something. Jesus, Royals has 921 million listens. It's all bots. on Spotify. <laughs> Elon Musk would say that it's 90% bots. Yes. Right. I also am trying to get out of some agreed upon deal here, which is doing this album next week. <laughs> After trying to artificially deflate the price of said <laughs> album. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's listening. It's getting getting political. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that political though? Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't really know what to say about this album other than I am approaching it with an open mind, and if it has that many listens, it must be decent. Nothing terrible has a lot of people listening to it out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the hell am I talking about. That's <laughs> that's a direct contradiction to everything I say. <laughs> If that many people have listened to it, it certainly means that many people. Maybe it's have just one person that listened to it ninety million times. Nine hundred twenty-one million times. All right. Well, uh, exciting week ahead. Well, folks, with that, I am Alan. I'm Rob. I'm Tom. And I'm Adam. Boosh.